0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Session podcast. I'm your host today, Alan Etzler. I'm joined by News Post state government reporter Samantha Hogan. Samantha, how are you doing today?
1: Oh, it's been a busy week, as it always is, I'm finding, so I'm hanging in there.
0: (laughs) That's good. We're glad to hear that. Uh, And we'll just jump right into it because you said it's busy and it's been busy on the legislative side. Uh, A flurry of bills this week, it sounds like. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, uh, legislators were facing a pretty stiff deadline, Um, you know, the first two weeks were pretty relaxed, but by Tuesday of this week, they had to have submitted their bills to drafting in order to guarantee that it would get a hearing at some point and that their bills would follow the regular legislative process. Now, they do have about two weeks, a little less, uh, depending on which chamber they're in. The Senate has to file their bills by February 4th. and the House has to file their bills by February 8th. So I know February sounds like, oh, a long way away, but we have to remember that it's January 25th today, and that's really not that far away. So there's definitely been an uptick in activities. The story of this week is bills, 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 bills. There's so many bills that the Department of Legislative Services hasn't been able to actually keep up with the pace of them being introduced. So um, I'm playing a little bit of catch up, but I've been excited to dive into this with a couple of lawmakers. And actually, I had the chance to sit down with Senator um, Michael Huff on um, earlier this week and talk about a couple of um, gun laws that he's actually considering.
0: Yeah. So, so what are some of those? It sounds like he uh, has a, a, quite a few of them that he wants to put forward this year. What, what are the ones that he, he talked to you about?
1: Well, he seems to have taken a really smart approach, which is that he wants to do four things to the public safety article. And instead of putting them all together in one bill and, you know, risking nothing getting through, he's decided to break it up into four uh, chunks, some that are a little bit more palatable perhaps to the legislator than others. Um, The first one that we're going to start out talking, though, about would actually change Maryland fundamentally from a May issue state to a right to carry state. So right now, in order to carry a concealed handgun in Maryland, you need to have what is known as a good and substantial reason. And what Senator Hoff is proposing is that he add just... Forwards, and that is personal protection and self-defense, and essentially that would be enough of a reason, a good and substantial reason, for an individual to qualify for a handgun. Right now, if you want to protect yourself or if you want to protect your family, that is not an ample enough reason for you to qualify to carry a concealed handgun. Um, He and I talked about this at length, um, but he does see this as something that had to get in early, something that is going to be an uphill battle, Um, but he has been a pretty strong proponent for Second Amendment rights, and he continues to be because he knows it's important to his constituents um but then he is also pushing to remove the training requirement for your handgun until you have preliminary approval from state police saying that you can already carry it it's a a little bit of a costly and time consuming process to go through so he thought why not give individuals that are serious about getting this permit at least a preliminary like yes no we're either going to accept your reason we're not going to accept your reason okay now you have 120 days to go and get your training and come back to the police um something i do want to back up and mention is is that there is you know it's not just a good and substantial reason that gets you a concealed handgun permit in maryland you do have to be an adult you cannot have been convicted of a felony you cannot be using um a controlled substance or have committed a crime that involved controlled substances and and you also cannot be a habitual user of alcohol or an addict in another form. So there is, you know, a certain degree um, that you will have to overcome in order to carry a handgun. Then we have two very small other pits of it and then we can move away from guns. Um, state police approached him about um, being able to accept a different kind of um uh, fee exception so uh, they can use credit cards and debit cards rather than uh, personal and business checks This is currently written into the law that one shouldn't be a huge burden and then also as I was talking about those controlled substances earlier because Maryland has legalized medical cannabis um, he is trying to write into a law um, specifically that if you are a medical like a license if you are allowed to consume medical cannabis for a medical reason that cannot um, stop the state from allowing you to then use uh, or qualify for a handgun permit.
0: So the the medical cannabis would... Uh, not qualify as a uh, a controlled dangerous substance. Is that kind of... Yeah, I mean, and once bill? again,
1: we get back to this federal versus state law issue when it comes to uh, marijuana because it's a class one narc- uh, drug, according to the federal government, and then you have, you know, a carved out exception here in Maryland for it to be a medicinal use. Um, you go down the road into D.C., it's different, and so are your handgun permit laws, and you go over to West virginia and both those things are different as well so uh, unfortunately it's just it's in that gray area and he's trying to clear up that gray area but it does have some bipartisan support um so that's interesting to see as does the um fee change how you can accept that so those things are potentially looking good
0: right and and this is the you, you mentioned here that the the most controversial of these is probably going to be the the turning from a may issue to a a uh kind of a shall issue right to carry type state. Um, this this comes up fairly frequently. D- does Huff feel any better than in recent years uh, with this bill?
1: You know, I think he still is a little tentative. Uh, he, I, They have the minority in the, in the chamber. Um, he has to get support and he has to, you know, prove to the other legislators that this is something that Maryland needs to take. But he was saying that it's kind of ridiculous people that have handgun permits from other states know to drive around Maryland because they can get in so much trouble um, coming through here with concealed guns or, you know, even just having a handgun on them. And so he kind of sees it as starting to fix the situation where, you know, repairing some of our Second Amendment rights inside of Maryland.
0: Right, right. And Senator Huffs not just involved in guns. So, so what are some of the the other things that he's going to be doing uh, in, in the next? Well, so, where are we at? Eighty days now, maybe or? 75 I think we're days at day left?
1: seventy-four. I think I saw on the calendar. Okay. Um, okay. Technically, um, but yeah, you know, he he's excited about a bunch of other legislation. He sits on um, the judicial. Um, panel committee for the senate so he's still working on reforms over there we can definitely see him working on sentencing um for first degree murder um, he's also, um, really pushing to, again, to see cameras be put inside the Senate chamber. Um, the House just announced this week, uh, Speaker Bush said that, uh, by 2020, they're going to be live streaming the, uh, House chambers so that you can see your legislators from your home, from your computer, um, and see who's talking and have better transparency in our legislator. And, um, Huff is putting in a bill to do the same inside the Senate, um, whether or not it will match up with that 2020 start. I'm not positive at this time, but he's excited about that. And he thinks that it really increases transparency with constituents.
0: Given where we're at in, in society, it's, it's it's quite surprising that that's not already a thing.
1: And he would agree with you 100 percent on that. <laughs> he said it's kind of ridiculous. So yeah. I, I, I There are a bunch of other states that already do this. Um, Whether or not Maryland's going to follow through and be one of them, too, um, we'll just have to wait and see. They've made promises about Maryland public television being in there before, and you can still only listen. So we'll have to see.
0: Right, right. Well, that's interesting. That's definitely something for us to watch uh, as the as the community newspaper, and only being able to send one person down there. So that's 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 really interesting. I know, um, and I
1: can only have eyes in so many places. <laughs> right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, there's a there's another Frederick County um, uh, delegation member who is, is active early on in session, uh, and that's Karen Lewis Young. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these bills that she's put forward?
1: Yeah, so I also had a chance to sit down with uh, Delegate Karen Lewis-Young this week, and she's putting in a a number of health bills um, that you probably saw us reporting on earlier in this week. Last year, she really championed being um, uh, to allow students to bring sunscreen with them, and she has a lot of family History with uh, skin cancer. She personally has had some basal cell scares and had, um, you know, suspect spots removed. So skin cancer is something that's really on her mind. And so she is actually proposing a bill that would eliminate a loophole um, that currently allows parents to consent for minors to use tanning beds. At tanning facilities and so that would write that out completely and what it would do is um, anyone under the age of 18 would not be allowed to use um, a sunbathing bed in um in maryland another thing that she's also looking at is an animal abuse registry she's done a lot of work on um animal advocacy and rights before but this year i mean this is a pretty big bill um, it would be very similar to a sex um, regi- uh, sex offender registry. Um, and so if you were convicted or had pled guilty to animal abuse, you would have to register annually with the county sheriff's office for 15 years after your conviction um, with your name, your address, your crime, and a photograph of yourself, um, essentially trying to increase transparency um, with, for these crimes. And I, you know, I'm reading through the existing statutes that we have on the book and you're reading about dogfighting and cockfighting and uh, baiting and abandonment and it, it, I mean it, it gets to your heart really quickly um, but I was also researching what other states already have this and Tennessee has a very similar registry that they started in January of 2016. Surprisingly though they don't have a lot of people on it. There were only 15 people currently statewide registered on their registry. Um, And I was reading through some statements by the ASPCA as well on their policy positions on um, animal abuse registries, and they are, you know, they're not fully in support of this. You know, they're a big animal advocacy group, and they are saying that sometimes this money could be better redirected in um, other ways to prevent abuse in the first place. So, I mean, there's obviously some internal divisions. It'll be interesting to see what comes up at the hearings. Um, This has actually changed committees. It used to go in front of the judiciary in the House. Um, It's actually going to a separate committee this time. She was hopeful that that could potentially change its fate, but it still may go over to the judiciary panel on the Senate side. So, um where you generally see some individuals be against the use of registries and what their effectiveness is kind of going back to that ASPCA argument as well
0: right we we've had locally here um one or two uh, cases that I can remember just this year of uh, I, it happens on farms but that have been of animal abuse and animal neglect. I don't know if farms would be included in this bill if farmers who are neglecting their animals would, would have to end up on this on a registry like that. But one of the challenges that, that you wrote about in I, I believe it was today's paper um, is that there's really no data. There's really no way to track this stuff right now who, is be, who has abused animals.
1: I know. I thought for sure that I could find the state's conviction rate, and I was actually surprised. I reached out to the attorney general's office. They don't collect data from the counties. I reached out to our state attorney's office. Charlie Smith got back to me and said that, no, actually, we, we they don't track this. And even when I reached out to Animal Control, which hit, you know usually keeps pretty good data records, said that they don't keep a database of criminal animal abuse cases, and they follow cases, individually, but they never quantify and put that into one central location. So it might be a way for us to create a database in uh, the state of Maryland, or it could be a huge hurdle for us to organize and to be able to do this. It's a relatively small fee that individuals would have to pay when they register annually. Whether or not they can, that would really cover the technology side of this, building out a database that does not exist anywhere, it seems. Um, yeah, that that kind of concerns me. That definitely could be something big. And I'm I'm told it's kind of a boom and bust thing. You see a couple cases, and then you might not see any for the rest of the year. And it varies widely annually um, what kind of animal abuse we see. And I mean, hey, less animal abuse is probably a good thing in the state, but. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, how much we can really quantify this.
0: Right, right, exactly. And, and you know, you mentioned there is um, the APCA, ASPCA is not necessarily supported or hasn't necessarily supported these types of registries. So there's a little bit of controversy here with this bill, but it's not the most controversial bill that she is putting forward, it sounds like. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about this, this next bill?
1: Yeah, so the Patients' uh, Bill of Rights is something that um, Delegate Karen Lewis-Young has fought for in the past three sessions. This is the third one that she's coming with it. And she has had 11 meetings with the Maryland Hospital Association. She's got 26 advocacy organizations that want to support this bill. And what was a list of 28 uh, patient rights have been parsed down to 24, which is still a lot. And it covers quite a wide range of physical and emotional well-beings, rights of an individual while they're seeking medical care. Also, their right to know what the cost of some of these procedures and seeing certain physicians would be. And then just what they can expect from the hospital experience itself. So it's very far-reaching. It's not that hospitals don't already do this to a certain extent. Some hospitals do have a patient's bill of rights. But this would make a universal set for Maryland so that there is consistency between hospitals when patients go and seek medical care. Um, This was something that she was talking to me about even before the session, something that was going to be difficult to pass. Um, Last year, when it went to the Senate, it was changed so substantially that she ended up pulling the bill. So, um, you know she said they remove those last four provisions in the spirit of compromise will it be enough uh, i don't know yet but i will be following this one closely because whether we like it or not a lot of us end up at the hospital at least once in our lives so
0: right exactly and what are what is some of the pushback to a bill like this why why wouldn't somebody be supportive of a patient's bill of
1: rights well, the way it was presented to me, and, I, you know, I haven't spoken with the hospitals themselves, that is something I definitely want to follow up and do, but the pushback is, you know, a state mandate, you know, saying that you have to run your hospital this way, and this has to be your bill of rights. Um, I, like I said, a lot of hospitals have their own, so... It's just, you know, adopting something new and and whether or not everyone wants to get on the same page about that when healthcare can be different between different hospitals. You know, different places are dealing with a different clientele and then they're also dealing with perhaps different levels of trauma. I mean, um, yeah, so that's what I've heard so far. I bet there's more nuance to it and I'm happy to dig deeper.
0: Right. And and she's going to be involved with a few other things, uh, maybe a little bit more minor stuff. Uh, Can you talk about some of these last two uh, uh, issues that she'll at least uh, be exploring? I don't know if she's... uh, Yeah, so she's not going to be the
1: primary sponsor on Death with Decency, which is um, essentially a terminally ill individual's ability to opt to end their life um i haven't seen the the write-up of the bill this year but she did say that she is going to be a a co-sponsor on it something that she's very passionate about Um, And then definitely to a lesser extent, um, but back to that animal advocacy area, she um, is trying to pass a statewide opt-out for students uh, for in-class dissections. And it's not that you would opt out and wouldn't do a dissection at all. It would be that you would be able to do a virtual or an online dissection. Um, She thinks that it's as good and that uh, students can learn the same outcomes Um, without having to uh, dissect an animal. She had a very traumatizing experience in high school uh, with having to dissect a cat and she said it actually made her drop out of the biology class that she was in and wow yeah so i it feels very personal and i think that there are definitely individuals that have the same feeling as her but you know just like the hospitals this is like how much are you how much is the legislature saying what teachers can and cannot do so is it giving them an option or is it taking something away from them um so that's up in the air too
0: Right? I was I uh in all of my years in school I never had to dissect an animal. I don't know what I would have done had they put a dead thing in front of me. That is, really?
1: You never dissected I, I anything? Did, yeah.
0: Never dissected a single thing. Uh maybe it's an FCPS thing. I'm not sure.
1: Okay. I I mean I went to an all-girls Catholic school and let me tell you I dissected a brain, a heart, a kidney, a stomach. Um yeah, so Of what? Uh, uh yeah, well, I think heart. it was a sheep heart. And, uh, pig kidney. And I'm not sure where the stomach came from. So yeah, just depend, but they were, what about the brain? What about the brain? I'm going to guess sheep from the size of it, but I'm not positive. It it was several years ago, obviously.
0: (laughs) Samantha Hogan, you're a better person than me. Um, No. And I mean, I have also dissected
1: a fetal pig and that one was a little gross, but
0: yeah, man, that's brutal. (laughs) Uh, While we're talking about um, farm animals, we can uh, have you put your uh, agriculture reporter hat back on. There were a few agricultural bills uh, that came up uh, regarding farmland preservation specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, so there are several county and state farmland preservation programs that Frederick County farmers are very interested in, whether um, it's to help preserve a farm, whether it's to pass a farm to a second generation, essentially, um, or to shore up a business. Um, Essentially, what they do is they are paid to permanently get rid of their development rights of that land so that um, instead of becoming houses, it will always stay a farm. And um, Frederick county always sees a very high turnout and interest for these kinds of preservation grants. Um, We saw essentially two housekeeping bills that occurred last year the land use article was um, modified to change part uh, a portion of uh, the preservation program essentially what they're doing is they're putting that exact same language into the agriculture article there's no new asks everything was vetted last year um, and it went through so they're just making those two things that currently contradict match the second thing is is that they actually finally carried through with some action that they had done in 2007 and 2012, which was to eliminate agricultural districts, which were essentially a designation you had to put your farm in before you could move forward with an application to be part of the state um, farmland preservation program. And so those are being formally written out. Frederick County is one of the few counties that actually has districts still. Um, anyone that's in a district um, probably opted to stay in it because they got a property tax credit. I was assured by Ann Bradley, who manages uh, land preservation for the county, that individuals that are in the district, as long as they want to be there, can stay there until they opt out and they will still receive the property tax credit. So none of that is hmm. changing, um, just some housekeeping bills for the preservation program. Um, Just a fun fact, we have about 65,000 acres of farmland permanently preserved either through county or state programs in Frederick County right now. And then um, the only other thing is is that uh, Michelle Cable, who's the new executive director of the state program, also announced that the program is moving back towards single year application cycles instead of every other year like it had been. We have a high demand, so this would honestly probably be really good news to farmers. Um, while I was yeah. also listening to those agricultural bills, I got to sit down with uh, Dr. Michael Raidbaugh, who is our state veterinarian, who many of you probably saw in the news quite often at the end of the Great Frederick Fair in 2017, when we had um, an outbreak of swine influenza. Well, he wasn't there talking about pigs, but he was there to talk about poultry. Um, there have been some concerns about avian influenza and having proper documentation of uh, birds being sold and transported in Maryland. Um, The animal health department was always staying on top of it and was always testing for avian influenza, and we haven't had a problem, but they are trying to rewrite um, a portion of the of a law that currently exists on how they can monitor avian influenza to give them um, broader authority and to buff up some of the documentation that are happening at some of these more informal poultry swaps at flea markets internet um, and by poultry dealers um, just making sure that we have proper documentation so that um, if we do identify a sick bird in maryland they can quickly find the farm of origin and eradicate the flock so that we don't see anything devastating like we saw out on the Dar- uh, Delmarva Peninsula in 2004 when um, some avian influenza got into commercial flocks. So um, he sees this as not so controversial and a very good move for the state. Um, I mean, I personally don't want us to see us have an avian influenza outbreak. Uh, that would be quite devastating for our poultry industry. So um, there was just some need for clarification on um, Need for licensing for those who transport birds if they're not the one selling them, if they're just trucking them. Um, so we can expect probably a small modification, but this looks pretty good.
0: All right. Awesome. And we're going to move to uh, quickly to a, um, a trans some transportation news. Um Governor Hogan's plan for I-270 uh, seems to be getting or taking at least a uh, hit momentarily uh, with a bill that was brought forward uh, this week. Can you tell us a little bit about that bill and what it would do uh, regarding Governor Hogan's uh, I-270 plan?
1: Yeah, so there was a long meeting um, where this was discussed and um, essentially what it's coming down to is uh, there might be a push to have a complete environmental assessment of the project before a pre-solicitation report can be released on the I-270 and I-495 project. There's actually a bill put in by Delegate Carr of montgomery county where where would be obviously impacted by the i-270 expansion um specifically putting out into the law that you would need to have that environmental assessment done before you could have a pre-solicitation report um this could delay the project by a year they're saying and um, that could come with a substantial cost um, Somewhere between 270 million and 300 million dollars is what was being floated. Whether or not that would be the actual price tag, it's uncertain. Um, I will definitely get us more information about whether or not that bill would be the only thing that could stop it. Uh, you know, could delay this by a year or not?
0: Well, well, that cost is a big deal because it sounds like it would be footed by by the private sector, right? And what would that do uh, to potential bidders?
1: Yeah, so because this is specifically looking at adding toll lanes to the project, um, you know, it could dissuade bidders from wanting to shoulder this extra cost. I mean, just think of any business where you tell them that they have to do an extra year of work before they can, you know, even get started on, you know, looking at other costs. So I, 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 you could see how that would be dissuading to people.
0: Right, yeah, I certainly don't want to pay an extra two hundred seventy million dollars for anything. No. Um, <laughs> let's. uh you had a special guest uh, today. It sounds like our uh, our, our representative in Congress, uh, one of our representatives in Congress, David Trone visited the state de- or the county delegation today, uh, and it sounds like he predicted the future.
1: He did because he said within the week uh, we would see an end to the federal government shutdown, which uh, just a couple of hours later was announced was going on to a. Four week reopen, sorry, a three week reopening and for negotiations. And we're going to continue to talk about border security. He clued me in a little bit. I'm sure you're seeing it in national news too. Democrats are kind of leaning towards this idea of a technology wall um, where we're increasing scanning at road crossings. We, I heard drones floated out, not by um, David Trone, but, you know, I've seen that in media reports rather than building a physical barrier, which is what. Uh, President Donald Trump has been pretty um, staunch about in needing the $5.7 billion that has kept this government from reopening um, in order to build a, a wall. Um, he David Trone was also saying that you know he would much rather see the money be put into road crossings, scanning equipment, and then also administrative law judges who can actually adjudicate these immigration cases because at the end of the day it's not really whether or not it's a wall at our physical border; it is a deeper immigration question. And Senator Huff um, actually brought up a great question for David Trone, which was you know he's very happy to see that there's border security being you know talked about by the Democrats but then he is going to be chairing a gang task force for the governor you know and what does that mean for drugs what does that mean for ms4 what does that mean for immigration we definitely have domestic gangs he he was very clear on that but we also have some international gangs as well and we know that ms-14 has been ms-13 has been a problem here in Maryland so I um, you know there are definitely local connections to this
0: right right exactly um we're getting close to the end of this i do want to i do want to get one more thing in uh, it's almost it's getting close to five o'clock on Friday and I could use one so let's talk a little bit about beer there were some beer, beer bills discussed with the delegation today
1: Yes, so today in particular, they were talking about uh, small breweries, Class 7 as they're known. Um, Our system's a little funky with numbers, so don't pay too close attention to it. But essentially, this would be Barley and Hops and Brewers Alley. And what this would allow them to do is currently there's a cap at 22,500 barrels for their annual production. Um, The bill that is being considered and was actually unanimously supported Minus uh, Delegate Dan Cox and Delegate uh, Barry Siliberti, who are both absent from today's meeting. But otherwise, um, it was unanimously supported that they were going to allow, they were going to lift that cap up to 45,000 barrels. There is also um, a change that would allow, if you had a second location and were brewing beer at both locations, you could sell up to 4,000 barrels within each of those locations, and then they would also, double the distribution rate that they're allowed to do. Currently, they're allowed to take 3,000 of those barrels that they produce and they're allowed to sell and distribute on their own without a wholesaler 3,000 barrels. They want to double that to 6,000. Now, part of this reason for carving out a special exception for Frederick County is we do have the most breweries. Absolutely, we have the most breweries in the state. And our neighbor, Montgomery County, is also considering very similar changes to the caps. Now, this has not been widely accepted by all of the wholesalers who see it as undercutting their own business. But there's strong support from the brewing industry. So we're just seeing it come to a head again sometimes bills that get unanimous support by the delegation are just passed as a courtesy whether or not we're going to see that because of the nuanced argument that we're already seeing coming out i don't know if we're going to see that courtesy um given to montgomery county and to frederick county um it would pass much easier if it was
0: Right, right, and and you know you you mentioned we do have the most uh, breweries in uh, of any county in the state, um, but it, it sounds like there are only a couple breweries in Frederick County who this would affect. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so it's only those two breweries that I mentioned uh, where the 45,000 barrel increase. But when we talk about the distribution end of it, actually we do pull the class fives and uh, the farm breweries into it as well. So someone small like Milkhouse Brewery out in Mount Airy and then also someone big like Flying Dog.
0: Okay, so that, that second part is a little bit more wide ranging there.
1: Yes, and that's where the wholesalers are upset.
0: Okay. All right. Well, um, we'll certainly be watching that closely given how big of a part of our economic um, uh, lifestyle beer is in Frederick County. But what, what else are you looking ahead to uh, next week?
1: Well, um, so it was recently brought out that uh, Crest um, was not funded in the governor's budget. And so the delegation has a lot of questions about that. So we will definitely be following up. There is an interesting bill on e-cigarettes and their use in indoor spaces um, that our health reporter, Heather Mangilio, is interested in. And she and I are going to be looking at e-cigarettes because they've kind of just exploded onto the scene and This is really the first session, I think, that legislators have the opportunity to start thinking about how this should be um, reeled in. um, And, you know, when it comes to kids, when it comes to public places. So expect to see some discussion on that. Um, You know, gerrymandering is always in the back of our minds as uh, the governor has put in some Big bills on um, establishing redistricting commissions. Um, so, you know, now that we're <laughs> now that we're talking to David Trone, um, you know, I would love to get his stance. This is his district, District Six. That's going back to um, the U.S. Supreme Court this March. Um, he said it would be best if the Supreme Court actually finally ruled on gerrymandering, um, whether or not we're going to get that kind of response. You know, I've spoken to a lot of experts. You never win when you bet on what the court's going to do. So whether we're (laughs) going to have a state solution, whether we're going to have a court-ordered solution from the district court, whether we're going to have a Supreme Court decision that's nationally going to change things, that's always up in the air and something that I stay awake at night wondering about. Um, And then also I really want to talk to our freshman delegates again they're going through this uh, bill drafting process for the first time. Um, uh, Jesse Pippi, who's in our House of Delegates, um, is is going strong on his ethics bill. And then he's, you know, also looking at human trafficking, he said. But um, he's expecting to drop between two and four bills this for his first session, which is lighter than some other ones. But uh, Ken Kerr is really interested in education and then also some other beer laws that i i heard him mentioning before and uh delegate cox also has some things in the pipeline that he's gonna clue us in on when he feel when he gets back drafts so we still have a lot of people just within frederick county's delegations whose bills we need to look at with both statewide and local implications so there's plenty more than enough for us to do and to talk about (laughs) next week
0: (laughs) No doubts, no doubts. Um, before I let you go, last thing, best thing you ate this week.
1: What did I eat this week?
0: Best I thing got a... you ate this week.
1: The best thing I ate this week? I didn't eat anything good. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I tell Colin I tell, the... Colin, I tell Colin, I pack my lunch. I know. I feel like you guys got to ask oh, me a man. different question.
0: <laughs> wow. Well... I Don't got a latte again. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I did. Samantha, it, it's 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 been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, for joining us. Uh, stay safe in Annapolis, and uh, we'll talk next week.
1: Sounds good.